0: Welcome, my name's Nick Milliken, Head of Client Solutions here at Allocate. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by CEO and co-founder of Allocate, Samir Kaji. Today, we're gonna discuss the founding of Allocate itself and what co-founders Samir and Hannah wanted to achieve when they broke away and started the firm. We're gonna talk about the evolution of the venture capital industry and how to think about allocations through a framework-based approach. We're gonna talk about the importance of education and then we're gonna end the conversation with a discussion about the current market environment and what may need to occur to drive a secular recovery in deal-making activity and valuations. We hope you enjoy the discussion. Samir Kaji is the CEO and co-founder of Allocate. Allocate and Venture Unlocked are independent of each other. Any statements or references made by Allocate or its guests regarding third parties, investments or securities are solely their views and opinions and are not intended as investment advice or an endorsement of such parties or securities by Allocate or its guests. Allocate or its clients may maintain relationships with or investment positions in guests, third parties or securities mentioned in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. So, Samir, it's great to have you on. Um, As we start out, it'd be great for the audience to get a bit of context on
1: you, yourself. So, why don't we go through your background and you know how you got here today? I won't go back too far, and I'll try to keep it a a little bit concise. But moved to the Bay Area about 40 years ago. Ultimately, went to school here locally, and then when I graduated in uh, 1998, I was actually working at Sears Roebuck selling vacuum cleaners, and I was kind of thinking about what I wanted to do. You know, my background and my father's background is actually in real estate. So he had a commercial real estate business. One of the things that I had considered was actually joining him in the real estate business. But being here in Silicon Valley, there's this thing called the Internet that was really becoming big, right? So people were using it. I started using it pretty actively in the mid-90s. I happened to be looking at the job board of my uh, college that I went to, undergrad, which was San Jose State. And the first uh, line item was Silicon Valley Bank. I was reading and it said, get to work with interesting technology companies and have the ability to work with some of the best entrepreneurs of tomorrow. And so I clicked on a Thursday, Friday, the interview and Monday, I got the job. And this is when, you know, the internet was at its peak in terms of the dot com bubble. And so they were actively hiring. I think I was employee number 700 or something like that. You know, a year later, I got to meet some really interesting companies that were going public pretty quickly. Uh, I met Google in the early days, got to work with companies like YouTube and Roku. So I really was fortunate to be part of such a great organization to meet companies at their inception stage. One of the things that had became really clear to me is I loved working with the people that were starting businesses and rethinking the way the future should be. And I did that really through the first nine years of my career and ultimately, had the opportunity to join the private funds group, working directly with VC funds and private equity funds. That was 2008. So, another great timing because this is during the global financial crisis. And I started to see some of these parallels that were happening, in these different asset classes. Venture was getting bigger and largely because of things like mobile and cloud. Before that, of course, the internet and these innovations made it so that every business was starting to use technology in some way. Being at Silicon Valley Bank, we were at the the forefront of that, and I really just got excited about what was happening in the world of venture capital and supporting these entrepreneurs. So in 2012, I had the fortune to um, be reached out by a bank called First Republic. Of course, First Republic and Silicon Valley Bank, everybody knows these two organizations from what happened in March and May of last year. But these were great organizations that gave me a, a great training ground to really learn about the industry and really build you know, great businesses. So I joined there to really start a team focused on working with VC funds that were in fledgling state. So think about a fund one, a fund two, and fund three. And the thought there would be many of those funds would grow up to be the, the next generation blue chip firms, the next Sequoia, the next Lightspeed. And spent about eight years there, built a great business with uh, you know, 40 colleagues working with about 700 VC firms and during that time I worked closely with a private wealth group and one of the things that always struck me about private wealth was that it was one you know an incredibly personal thing where an advisor works with a client over time the clients started to demand more they wanted more than just somebody that could put them in, in the S&P or public equity index or another muni bond and especially during a time where interest rates were effectively zero for nearly a decade People wanted to do things like alternative investments. And what I knew about alternative investments, private equity, venture capital, is they were largely off limits. It's particularly the highest quality firms to just the big institutional brands, the endowments, foundations, the fund of funds out there. And having kind of been through a world where, you know, my dad didn't really have the pedigree to get into real estate and he kind of fought his way in. I was really just motivated by evening the playing field. And so when First Republic started offering alternatives, it was this aha moment. Now we can offer the average investor, meaning somebody that's not a foundation or endowment, the ability to invest in these really great private credit funds, real estate funds. And as you can imagine, venture became bigger, tech became more ubiquitous, and our clients started to want things like venture capital. And so the opportunity to bring venture capital on that platform was a really interesting experiment. But what I thought was still missing was the ability to reach a wider audience of families and individual clients through RAs and to do it in a way that was very tech forward. And that really birthed the idea of Allocative. How do we level the playing field of investing in alternatives by making it more personalized, where things are curated to you, where diligence is done, where access is almost unfettered, and there's no barriers around things like your minimum check size and who you know, and the ability to spend time with these managers, and to do it in a way that also removed the frictional barriers of, as you know, Nick, signing up for subdocs and then logging into ten portals to get your to get your financial reports and your K ones. Our view is let's make this as easy as the public markets, but as responsible as well. I mean, it's obviously
0: um, great timing to just with you know, obviously the economic backdrop was there, the tailwinds were there, but there have been a few people that have come into the space previously and they're all trying to solve the same problem. But specifically when you founded Allocate, how did you want to differentiate Allocate from the other providers
1: that were out there? We were lucky, actually. There was a full generation of platforms that had come out. And these platforms, Nick, you worked at one of them. We have other people on the team that worked at, you know, the other large competitor, both were kind of in the early part of the 2010s. And there were two things that we wanted to focus on. Number one, was bringing new asset categories to the world. So number one is looking at those old platforms, they did not include things like venture capital, particularly venture capital across the entire spectrum. We can talk about this a little bit later of how venture capital has matured and segmented, but offering you know, things like VC in a way that would provide investors with the same ability to build portfolios like the Yales and the big sort of uh, successful foundations and endowments out there. The second was to personalize the experience. Most investors, while they may want to do private alternatives, they have very different risk tolerances, different return expectations. Their liquidity constraints are different. One of the things that I really wanted to do was build a platform that would personalize the experience based on all those variables of the individual investor. Whereas, Nick, VC might be right for you, but it may not be right for somebody else on the platform maybe for them private credit or something that's more liquid makes sense that is something i just didn't see at scale where you had that curation at scale and so as we think about the future of our company it is offering alternatives that don't show up on maybe the big wirehouses the private banks maybe the other platforms things are a little bit more in the boutique alternative category that could generate real alpha but at the same time are personalized to the uh, the end client
0: So, personalization um, is probably one of the barriers to scaling anything, right? Because everyone is completely different and unique. So, how do you think about
1: actually attacking that problem or addressing that problem? How do you scale personalization? Well, there's a lot of obviously technological advances we've seen over the last few years and everything from being on top of everybody's mind, things like OpenAI, Anthropic, these large language models that mimic a human being. And our view on those type of models, is they augment the human being. They don't replace the human being. Wealth management in general is is a very person-to-person relationship type of business. You need to have that because those are the things that really allow you to build trust, credibility, and really understand what the client wants. But personalization can be accelerated through all the data that you have about the fund, about the macro, about the individual. To be able to use a data-driven view, to quickly assess somebody's portfolio, and quickly be able to recommend the deals, understanding the impact on that person's portfolio. To be able to put in things like, if a macro change happens, what does this mean for this individual's portfolio? If they're buying a house in three years, well, how do we now course correct the portfolio to include that? That can all be technology-driven. And we're already using some of that internally in, in how we structure the data on all of these kind of variable inputs and eventually layer a level of artificial intelligence on that. Our view is not artificial intelligence replaces the human. I don't think that's, that's the case at all. But I do feel it allows our advisors to be faster, more informed, and more accurate in terms of how to help somebody on an individual basis.
0: Yeah. So we're not talking about like another robo-advisor type experience, right? We're talking about real personalization.
1: Robo-advisors use basic algorithms that are based on a very few variable inputs. And what they do is they use that algo to then build a portfolio. That works when you're looking at public equities where you can trade in and out. It's easy to rebalance. In the private world, once you invest in a fund, outside of maybe evergreen funds and funds that have some level of redemption but even those are semi-liquid once you invest you're locked up typically for 5, 7, 10, 15 years so you don't have the ability to rebalance so you really need a more sophisticated tool that includes the human being as well as all these data pu- inputs that really help plan out portfolio construction at scale and you know, if we look at the the analogy of robo advisor robo advisor 1.0 was just basic algos Robo advisor number two will include artificial intelligence along with a human being.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, before we move on to the venture markets itself and frameworks, um, you've obviously spent most of your career working with and around entrepreneurs. Like, how did that prepare you to become an entrepreneur yourself?
1: Honestly, it didn't. Uh, you know, I, I remember when I first started the, uh, the company and I was leaving the, uh, the big bank world, and I'd spent 23 years working with these big, you know, very large institutions. That were publicly traded. And I remember talking to a few of my clients that were entrepreneurs. And I said, you know, tell me what experience you went through and what are the things that you look for? And, and what they basically said was number one, expect it to be 10 times harder than you think it will be and expect a lot of unforeseen things happen. You can have the best laid plans at the beginning, you can have your hypotheses. The goal, really, and objective of an entrepreneur is really to be a great learner. So learn constantly, you know, you're going to get feedback along the way, you're going to have to be able to implement it and adapt to be successful. So it's been two and a half years, me being in the co-founder CEO seat. And I, I can tell you they are wrong about the 10x. I think it's more like 25x harder than you think it will be. It's also 25x more rewarding than you, you think. So where it prepared me was at least having a basic understanding and the humility to understand that no matter how successful we may have been in these big corporates, that the carryover was going to be limited and we had to essentially start a new learning journey. And that's what I've really found out over the last two and a half years. It's been everything from people management, talent acquisition, product development, Thinking about how do you solve a client's problem in a way that hasn't either hasn't been done before or in a way that's materially better than how things have been done in, in the past. And Nick, as, as you're part of the organization, you've seen the evolution in even the six months you've been with us and how much we've taken these learnings and adapted how we build our vision, our product, and the overall client interface.
0: Yeah, no, it's been exciting to of six months. It's hard to believe it has been six months. It uh, certainly feels a lot longer than that. And that's not saying anything about you or the organization. It's been uh, really, really rewarding itself. When we talk about venture, internally, we talk a lot about how it's no longer this monolithic industry. Can you talk about how you've seen the venture industry evolve over your career and how you know, the frameworks, which you kind of
1: touched on, can be employed to sort of pass the opportunity set? I think it's important to go back in history to set the the stage of what venture used to be and why it's moved to to this new sort of era and how venture looks like, how it's defined and how it's segmented. The first venture fund was back in the 40s, ARDC. Venture didn't institutionalize, however, until the 70s, 80s and early 90s. That's when you had firms like Kleiner Perkins and Sequoia and some of these brand name firms really emerge as really craftsmen investing in these early stage companies and providing them the capital to get off the ground at that point banks weren't going to do it there wasn't a lot of private equity wasn't really a business that was investing in inception stage companies up until maybe 2008 venture was fairly monolithic meaning that all venture funds effectively did the same thing there's typically 3 to 5 partners sitting around a room making investments across all industries There was no specialization, it was generalization. And I do remember this when I first started my career. I was looking around, and I I would drive by these iconic firms like Kleiner Perkins and Sequoia, and I remember thinking, wow, these people, look at the companies they've invested in, but they were really competing against each other. They were doing the same thing. And then when things like the internet happened, the internet actually made it possible for so many businesses to be built on this infrastructure- e-commerce companies and the like. When cloud came, it reduced the cost of a company starting because companies no longer had to buy servers so they could launch products very quickly and fairly inexpensively across different industries. So no longer was it one industry, but it was fintech and healthcare and general enterprise and consumer. And it didn't take $10 million to get a company's product to market. It would be a million dollars or less with a few talented engineers, then mobile came. And mobile essentially made it so easy for people to distribute their technology to these supercomputers that were in everybody's pocket. And so what that that really kicked off was this Cambrian explosion, both of startups, but also this Cambrian explosion of the venture funds. On the venture fund side, what we saw was the advent of what we used to call micro VC, but we call them seed stage or emerging managers. These are people that were raising these very small funds, typically specialized in nature. That created a new segment in the market. Today, the seed stage market and the number of funds that are active today is about 2,700 seed funds. Of those 2,700, I estimate 2,600 were founded after 2010. And if you look at the number of active VC funds in 2007-8, the total industry is only about 8 or 900. That were actively writing checks, so almost three times that in seed managers have come. So that's one part of the uh, the industry. The other part of the industry, if you think about the analogy of a barbell, is you have the big large brands that now are multi-product, multi-strategy, and a lot of people know these names. Whether it's the Lightspeed, Sequoias, Andreessen and Horowitz, these firms have grown to substantial size. This is in many ways no different than what we've seen in private equity. Of course, we have small cap private equity funds. We have mid cap and we have large cap. Just as private equity has gone from monolithic to non-monolithic, venture is going the, the, the same way. So if you think about the big P, whether it's Blackstone, Apollo, Aries, KKR, similarly, we have the Lightspeeds, Andreessen, and Sequoias of the world. And then you have kind of the mid cap funds, and the mid cap funds typically raise 250 to $750 million. And what they usually do have is some level of specialization that could be a, on a geography. That could be on a sector. That could be based on a certain theme. Each one of these segments has a very different risk return. So when people think about venture is risky or it's not risky, or here's the return profile, you really have to have the nuance understanding that there's different sub products within the umbrella of venture capital. It is no longer the same. A $50 million seed fund has very different risk, return and time to liquidity characteristics than a $15 billion growth equity fund that is doing Series B, Series C and Series D investing. As an investor, you really need to be able to delineate between between these different segments. So when you think about segmentation of the
0: market itself, you can also think about segmentation of return. So does that lend itself to borrow from more traditional markets, the concept of alpha and beta? And then, how do you overlay overlay that on you know a framework like this, where you have C, and then you have your early stage specialists, and then you have your brand names out there?
1: There's a illustration. I forget who posted that. I think it was based on Cambridge data that showed, if you look at back at the last twelve or thirteen years of VC, I would think it was seven out of the top ten firms or funds of each vintage year are Fund One, Two, Three, and Four. The immediate reaction could be, well. I should only invest in fund one, twos, and threes, and fours because they provide the, and this is by total value to paid in capital, which is essentially the multiple on the cash you provide the fund manager. The problem with that is it's only looking at one lens, which is top end upside. And it is true that the smaller the fund, the higher the probability that it can reach these massive outlier type of top end returns, a $50 million fund versus a $15 billion. Pure math would suggest that a $50 million fund, if it hits the right company, if it invested in Uber, it invested in Twitter. In fact, we had an $8 million fund that invests in those two companies and return almost 300x to their LPs. Well, you're not going to get that with a $15 billion fund. But with those smaller managers, you are going to have more standard deviation of returns, more volatility of returns. And it's still a very small group of those managers that will get those top end returns. So, if you look at the top ten, yes, seven out of the ten were these smaller managers. but if you look at the bottom end of the spectrum in terms terms of the top quartile i'm sorry bottom quartile, a lot of those same names would be in there and on the bigger end, of course, generally speaking, because you're investing across stages and on a look through exposure, maybe two thirds of the fun is Series B and later, you typically have less volatility, they have brands, there's you know a lot of data that suggests that Firms, as they get longer and they continue to perform, the likelihood of staying in the top quartile is much higher than other asset classes. So that's because the brand, the team, the talents, the halo effect of investing in great companies, even though you may be capped on the top end return because it is just hard to get a 10X on a $3 billion fund, you're probably also reducing the downside. So the parameter of upside versus downside is much more narrow versus the volatility you might see on the left side of the barbell with the seed funds.
0: Yeah, I think that pulling through the conversation and teasing it, point out like it just sort of points to the the fact that manager selection becomes very very important when you move into an asset class like venture. Obviously, because the return profile is is so skewed, and there is such a variance between the top and bottom performing managers in this space. When we look at another way that people think about the market, it's always you, know, you mentioned it before. It's risk, return, and then liquidity. So, how does that factor into this type of a framework? You know, especially since venture itself, as you mentioned, is a fairly illiquid asset class in
1: and of itself. There's three things that you have to look at in investing these type of funds. What is the overall potential risk level? What is the return potential? And then the third, as you mentioned, is what is the time for liquidity? So a seed fund, because you're investing at the early stages of a company's inception, your risk is just going to be higher. But you're also getting a higher return potential because the valuation you're getting into these companies are going to be the lowest they're ever gonna be for companies that make it. And therefore you have higher risk, higher, higher return potential, but you're also taking a long term illiquid approach with these companies. Some of the best companies that start from seed to IPO, there was a time where seed to IPO or first first round to IPO was four years. And this was like late nineties and early two thousands somewhat in some cases. Now it's eight and a half to twelve years, so while you may have a drawdown that of the fund that you're making capital calls over a four to five year period, you may not see any material returns until you're seven, eight and nine. Conversely, if you're investing in a growth stage fund that's doing series b, series C, series D investments, they're investing in more mature companies, and especially in today's environment, where getting a series B, C, or D round really requires a different bar than what we've seen in. Certainly, 2019, 20, and 21. These are companies that have strong fun- fundamentals, strong growth metrics. They have products that people are buying. They have things that you can that demonstrably say that there's a viable business model, and the time to exit is smaller because you're often investing in companies that are in year four, five, and six of existence versus years zero, one, or two. So when we look at that, risk is lower for those bigger funds typically. The return expectations have to be muted to a certain degree because you're paying higher prices for those later stage companies when you invest in those following rounds or in net new growth rounds. And the time to liquidity obviously shortens as well in terms of when those companies may exit.
0: Yeah. And the, even looking at the, the macro level, you know, companies say private longer, they're raising more capital, you know, being more mature by the time they get to the public markets is exactly why you know, investors today are sort of seeking out private market solutions to get access to that high growth phase that companies do go through. So what do you think the role of education is in all of this? You know, where are the gaps, and the opportunities? Because obviously, it's a, a venture has historically been a fairly opaque industry. You know, how do you bring some
1: transparency to that? I know it's core to us at Allocate, but, you know, in your view, what, how do you do that? So we do a lot. And, and I think it's incredibly important for people to be informed on what is an incredibly esoteric and idiosyncratic asset category. It's a weird asset category. It just behaves different. You have the power law, and it's a very exclusive community of people, and there's a few people that get to see all the opportunities, and this is just not how it is in other asset classes, so it doesn't behave the same. The role of education is both at the macro level, like why venture capital, we'll go into that in a second, but also things like fund evaluation, how do you evaluate a fund manager? that may not have a track record or a fund manager that has a long track record, but has increased fund size by 5x since their last well-performing fund. And so we do a lot of workshops, webinars, events where people can meet these managers to be able to really build their own mental models of how to invest in this asset category. This is something I've been really passionate about, whether it's through the podcasts I do, through the writings I've done for the last 14 years now is really getting people to understand what's happening on the ground. Venture is the one asset class where people are investing in things that will reshape the future. Not what happens today, but what is going to happen five to 10 years from now. And as you mentioned, Nick, many of these companies that used to be public companies are now staying in the private sector for much, much longer. In fact, if we had a chart up, I'd show the chart where we look at companies of the 90s, 80s, and early 2000s of how much of their value up to $20 billion in market cap happened in the public markets versus the private markets. Pre-2000, over 90% of the value was accrued in the public markets. These companies would go public very quickly in boutique investment banks. After that, after Sarbanes-Oxley, after people realized that there's more private capital, Almost every large company you see Facebook, OpenAI, SpaceX, Stripe, Databricks, all of these companies, the first 20 billion, all in the private markets. And the funding source for those companies is venture capital. So when you think about the market, you're, we're essentially creating a two-sided marketplace. We have LPs
0: that want access to these solutions, you have GPs who want access to the LP capital, because it's a diverse source of capital for them. But how are you going about educating the GPs about how to think about the opportunity with, within this newly created market? So
1: if you think about what's happened, and, and I'm going to go back to the barbell for a second. If you look at the big institutional firms, the vast majority of the capital they raise has been from institutional investors, whether it's sovereign wealth funds, you know, mentioned foundations and damage fund of funds, even for those funds, as they've gotten bigger, as those firms have gotten bigger over time, a couple things have happened. One, there isn't a new foundation or endowment popping up every day. Many of them have been deep into investing into private alternatives for a long time. And so many of them are reaching their cap of what they can do in terms of adding new managers, doing re-ups, the amount of their portfolio that's allocated to privates, in some cases, 50, 60%. Fundamentally, in order to grow, Many of these firms have to tap into alternative sources of capital. The biggest source of capital right now that's largely under allocated to privates is the private wealth sector. And I think you've seen the numbers, but the amount of capital managed in the private wealth sector is essentially equivalent to the amount of capital that's managed in the institutional sector. However, if you look at the allocation to alts, it's three or four X more in the institutional sector than the than the private sector. So what we educate people on is why is it important to diversify your LP base? If you're a smaller manager, you probably have had to go after families and individuals, but how do you do it in a more efficient way? So our our you know, way of doing it is for managers that are fully diligent, that we feel comfortable with in providing it to our clients, it's an easy way for the manager to be able to plug into this massive universe of non-institutional capital at scale without all the friction. And for the LPs, they get to see things that are fully diligence and curated. So you're right, it's a two-sided marketplace. And for the GPs, giving them an idea of how to do this without, you know, the normal frictional barriers of talking to 100 families, 27 RAAs and trying to get, you know, some capital, it does require either a platform like us or a lot of time on the GP's front. And so a lot of GPs have actually decided not to do it because they can't do it themselves or they don't, they don't have the time because they may have one IR person. I forget, I forget the number, but Blackstone and some of these big firms have huge groups dedicated just to private wealth channel. But some of the biggest VC firms in the world may have less than 10 IR people and in many cases have less than three. Well, it's, I
0: mean, it's been an incredibly um, successful business model when it comes to Uber and Airbnb, so maybe allocates the next Uber, Airbnb. Let's hope so. So if we shift our focus to the markets themselves, obviously we've had more than a decade of very accommodative monetary policy, which fueled the bull market in all risk assets. And that was before the government's response, fiscal response to the COVID pandemic, which really added fuel to that fire. Obviously that created the conditions that we saw in 2021, where we had record highs in deals and valuations within the venture market, which was followed spectacularly with the comeback to earth there. And we've talked about this before about that 2018-19 being a two-standard deviation event relative to the rest of venture's history in terms of deal sizes, valuations, and then the come down being exactly the reverse of that. So we're obviously entering some sort of mean reversion when it comes to those, those things. But where are we today in terms of the venture cycle itself? And what do you see as the greatest impetus to the next move higher or the next super cycle for the industry?
1: Let's talk about a little bit of what happened in venture. And you're right. All asset categories were, were lifted, and it was a function of low interest rate environment and then amplified by what happened in 2020 and 21 with fiscal and monetary policy pumping even more capital into the market. And the longer that goes on, the more people become risk-on. They were willing to take more risk. And the risks usually pay off because there's usually a willing buyer willing to pay a higher price. This happened in the public markets, certainly happened in the private markets. What the private markets did, particularly venture capital, is they were taking a cue from the public markets. So if you think about the public markets in 2021, enterprise software as a service companies, the next 12-month multiple for a lot of these companies was 25 to 50x, meaning that the public markets were willing to pay huge multiples well above historic norms. Historic norms, about 6.2x. If you look at the last 10 years, about 9.6x or the normal multiples. And so what you saw also during the time is former investors that were just public market investors, realizing that if the public market's paying 25 to 50x, which is pretty expensive, they can dip into the private markets. And we know some of these crossover funds that raise large amounts of capital to put in late stage private companies, and they were willing to pay 50 to 75x, Because the thought would be there would be a willing buyer two to three years later. Those companies would not only grow into those valuations they paid, but would exceed them. When that turned around, the market shifted. And as we look at where we are right now, this all happened when rates went up. Of course, inflation was not transitory. And we saw the rates rocket up in the first half of 2022. That brought down multiples in the public markets. That always happens. If you think about the reverse effect, the late-stage market got affected first, meaning those crossover funds no longer had this arbitrage opportunity and simply could not pay those type of multiples, and the public market became a better place to invest because there was much more sobriety. And as we've seen the last two years, now it's working from late-stage to mid-stage to early-stage. Ultimately, what happened in 2022 and 23, people put their pencils down. You know, we were all trying to figure out How do we value companies? What are the public multiples going to be? And then what do companies need to achieve from a fundamental basis to be able to attract either fall on capital or an exit? And it wasn't just growth at all costs and top line revenues without any thought of unit economics. We always go back to fundamentals is what is your timeline to profitability? What are your unit economics? What's your user churn? And then ultimately, capital efficiency People care about again. So we've seen this massive, like it's almost like we went a thousand miles per hour in 2020 and 21 after going maybe 600 miles per hour in 2017, 18, 19. And then it's almost like we hit a brick wall. In the private markets, just to kind of throw out one stat, there's this term unicorn in the private venture market. And that refers to a, a company that within 10 years reaches a billion dollar valuation. So In 2021, 732 new unicorns were minted. There's only 1,200 total, and in 2013, I think it was like five. There's only five. And guess what? Of those 732, 60% of those rounds that turned those companies into unicorns were were led by four firms. I'll name two: SoftBank and Tiger are two of them. What we know is those are. You know, and Aileen Lee from Kleiner, or formerly from Kleiner, now at Cowboy, had this term in paper she put out recently, and we can link it in, in the uh, blog we put out for this. She called them papercorns, and what we believe is many of those companies will never have an exit anywhere near their last round valuation because the last round valuation was was a product of the supply environment. We've had a painful two years. Companies have been shutting down. There's been markdowns. This is all healthy in the long term. But the higher the market goes up, the longer it takes to work through the system. You had companies that raised enough capital in 2021 to last three years. Now they've extended runway by doing layoffs, by becoming more financially fit. In terms of the after effects and the hangover for 2021, really, it's gonna probably take three or four years, and we'll start to see more of the capitulation in terms of down rounds, companies shutting down. But if you're looking at things from a net new investor standpoint, this is what we care about. If I'm deploying capital right now, I see two things. Number one, a return to sobriety. A flight to quality in terms of the number of companies and the type of companies that are getting funded is stronger. The metrics that companies need to meet in order to acquire funding is significantly higher than we saw any time during the zero interest rate policy. And then we couple that with now what could be a new transformational piece of technology, which we fully believe in, and that's artificial intelligence. And if you look back in history, when you've had the coupling of a market reset along with a new technology paradigm, venture capital returns have historically done better. So think about what we saw in 08-09, global financial crisis, followed by mobile and cloud intersecting with it. Today, again, The 2022, 2023 reset, maybe in 24, along with artificial intelligence. Our belief is artificial intelligence has the opportunity to rival the impact economically and societally to the internet. So we like these eras where sobriety plus a new paradigm, you know, is in place. It's interesting because you have at the same time that all this is occurring, you have
0: this new market unlocked essentially the ultra high net worth and the, the, I'm going to say retail investor, but the person who can now is the marginal buyer of venture because they haven't had any exposure before. So what would you say to someone who's sort of coming into this market now who hasn't had the, you know, the time in the market that you have to see what's been going or what's been happening? Like how should they be considering the asset class today, just given everything?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think you have to be really careful. And, and this goes for anything in investing. Number one, understand what you're doing and why you're doing it. Venture is going to always be the small, typically the smallest piece of somebody's portfolio. Maybe it's 5%, maybe it's 10% over time. Yet at the same time, just because the market is better and more sober and there is AI as this big driver of not just AI companies, but how enterprise operate, it is not a get out of jail free card. It's still very hard to make money in the industry there still is going to be a, a high concentration of performance that's limited to a fewer, fewer amount of funds relative to the market. And obviously, on the company side, too, there's you know, some companies that drive you know the vast majority of returns. So what I would tell people is, number one, ask yourself the questions of like why venture for you? Why does this make sense? So there's a variety of reasons. It's returns, it's non-correlated uh, performance relative to other asset classes. It's the ability to learn about what's coming. And all of these are valid reasons. Second, understand, do you have the opportunity to avoid what typically is pretty rampant in venture capital, which is adverse selection? You know, are you going to consistently see the very best opportunities that allow you to really generate the type of returns that make sense? If you think about venture historically, the top decile we looked at, you know, these are the pitch book numbers for a 25-year period. I think it was 96 to 2021. Top quartile venture was near thirty percent net to to limited partners with a three point oh six. Well, that's kind of what you need to get to be able to justify it over other asset classes, especially in a in a different interest rate environment. Private credit is interesting. Buyout historically, if you get into the top funds, you know one point eight to two point two x is very possible. And the three month treasury is yielding north of five percent. When I talk about these things, you know, it's not that everybody should do venture. I actually don't think everybody should do venture. But if you do have venture as part of your plans and you can validate why it makes sense for you, having the information, the access, the network to be able to be successful is key. Public
0: listings and IPOs peaked in 2021 at almost 700 billion dollars. So since then, that IPO window has been essentially closed. We've seen a couple of mediocre um, IPOs in terms of performance come out since then. We're great companies, but obviously not the support in public markets that you would expect. What has to happen for the IPO window to essentially reopen?
1: The exit environment is actually really challenged right now. You mentioned $800 billion in 2021. I think 2023 in terms of even you know total exit volume was like $60, mil- $60 billion, right? So about 8% of what we saw in 2021 So a few things have to happen. Number one, these companies have to reshape their overall financial efficiency to be able to be public companies, like i.e. cash flow profitability or close to it, better margins. Understanding that in order to go public as a technology company, you probably need 150 to 250 million dollars in revenues if you're a SaaS company, which you know historically wasn't the case. These companies are going to have to get further. There is a backlog of great companies, though. And if you look at some of the companies that are out there that have at least talked or been talked about about public offerings, Databricks, Reddit, Canva, Stripe, all right, these are all companies, SpaceX, eventually, these are all companies that are really great companies that ultimately will go public. They just don't have to go public right now. They're sitting on a lot of cash stores. And they can wait till the market is either more amenable to the type of companies they're running or where they feel like their metrics and fundamentals are going to be well received by the market. So it's more of a, am I willing to take the price that the public markets are giving and raise at at those prices? I expect to see more activity in 2000, late 24 and 25. I think beginning of 24, I think it's more of the same. M&A is going to be challenged to a certain degree. And we've seen this not only because people are less acquisitive, but also because we've seen regulatory bodies, the FTC shutting down Figma and Adobe. There's another company, Grail, I think, that had the similar thing. And so big acquirers are going to have to now take into account the regulatory risk and maybe breakup fees. I think Adobe paid Figma a billion dollars as part of the breakup. That's a huge amount. I do think that as many of these companies are more financially fit there will also be the opportunity to exit to private equity. And that is an interesting area where you don't have to be a growth at all costs, high cash burn company forever. The problem is private equity. People are really smart people and they usually buy on EBITDA. They don't buy on top line revenue. No one cares about your SaaS or AR. It is what are you actually cash flowing and what multiple am I willing to pay for it? And I do think some of the companies that are in that stage where they can't get acquired, they can't go IPO, will figure out to reshape their income statements and balance sheets to be able to have exits through non-traditional sources like PE. Interesting. Um, so definitely some
0: opportunity there. So the last question I want to ask you, like the one thing I love about working in the venture industry is you get to see the future, right? You've got all this innovation occurring here with in technology or life sciences. What are you, in your seat, um, you're having seen a few cycles here, most excited about in the coming 12 months when it comes to, it could be other venture or private markets
1: themselves. So I'm very long-term bullish on the role of innovation and the pace of innovation accelerating the way it is. So OpenAI, for example, you know when they came out with ChatTB3, we were just blown away. Sitting on the ground, seeing some of the new models that have been built and the applications for those new models. I'll give you an example of a sector that I think is going to transform dramatically because of the use of AI, and that's drug discovery. Drug discovery, typically a very long process, but with the use of AI, we are going to be able to accelerate drug discovery and the overall efficiency and efficacy of these drugs to be able to solve real health problems. So I think about healthcare as an area that I'm incredibly uh, interested in, and and this is just another role of artificial intelligence in accelerating that. So it's not really the next 12 months. I don't really think about things in 12-month increments, but it's more about where do we look like in 2028, 2033? And I think what we'll see in the next 10 years is more innovation than we've seen in the last 30 years. Interesting. All right. So there's a
0: lot coming down the pike then, uh, but obviously that long-term view on how this is going to impact and shape the economy. Well, thank you, Samir. It's been a great chat. Uh, I've learned a lot, and I get to talk to you several times a day, so I appreciate you sharing some of your thoughts here and uh yeah thanks it was fun doing this